his way through a crowd. There was a lot of people around him. A woman had reached out and touched his garment, and through that she was healed. And then uh, later there was a young girl that had died, and Jesus was able to come into that house and resurrect her from death. Uh, and just great things. And as is commonly noted in Mark, we see that after this, Jesus had gone away. In fact, we preached a message about the importance of taking time to step away from things and to kind of realize what's going on and appreciate what is happening. And that's, this is one of those times for Jesus. He has stepped away from the crowd, stepped away from the ministry, as it were, and had gone to his hometown. And his hometown, of course, was Nazareth. And now, this was not Jesus' first time to return to his hometown. In fact, as part of his public ministry, this was the second and the first time he returned, it was recorded in Luke chapter four, verse chapter excuse me, first chapter four, verse sixteen. We'll read together. It says, "And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read." And then we'll skip to verse twenty-nine to see how it ended. <clears throat> and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So you can see Jesus' first return home in his public ministry, you know, the welcome mat wasn't necessarily laid out. It wasn't a great return. In fact, they weren't very happy with him at all. They denied his authority and went so far as to drive him out of the synagogue and push him to the edge of town to a cliff to throw him over the cliff. There's not many things that say, we don't like you, than trying to throw you over the edge of a cliff. But that's exactly what they tried to do to Jesus. Now, after some time, he's returning home, back to Nazareth, these same people, for a second visit. And one would hope that perhaps some of his notoriety, or uh, maybe he's a little further along in his ministry now, and some of his great works would precede him, and perhaps even prepare the hearts of these people to have open minds, perhaps, to hear what he had to talk. Maybe even they would be willing to repent about that nasty incident that happened the first time that he came home. But we know that this is not the case. In fact, let's pick up reading in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and the disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense in him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work here except that they laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about and among the villages teaching. So Jesus, as is his common practice, as he's come home, he is coming to the synagogue to preach. Now, this just wasn't his practice. In fact, this was the practice of most prophets or teachers of the time. When they would come to a town, one of their first visits was to go by the synagogue and to preach and teach there in hopes that the religious elite and perhaps even the local priest would hear what he's saying and give some type of affirmation or a stamp of approval on his teaching. Also remember in the story last week, 
This kind of gives us some pictures, some insight into what it's like to be in a service in the synagogue. The story last week, we talked about the woman who had the issue of blood because she was considered unclean, was not allowed to take part in the public worship. This can give you a picture, some indication of what these services were. Many of the commoners were excluded because of technical issues they had with the law, a law that most often the priests were a little overzealous to keep. But here Jesus was on the Sabbath day, standing in the synagogue of his hometown, preaching. And could you imagine the power and the intensity with which Jesus preached? And the conviction, surely more than enough to capture the hearts and minds of his hometown Nazarenes. But then we see the response of these people who have perhaps seen more of Jesus than anybody. Remember, this is where Jesus grew up. It says that they were astonished. Now, it's important that we understand the context here when we're talking about astonished. This was not a good astonished. More, they were baffled by the authority that he was teaching with. Let me illustrate it this way. Before we arrived here at Integrity, at this building, Integrity used to meet at um, like the City Hotel and Bistro and uh, school for a while. And so there was this group of heroes that were called the setup team that would arrive early on Sunday morning about 6 a.m. and they would unpack this trailer and begin to set things up. And I was on the setup team one particular Sunday and there were two band members that were there a little early and I could remember hearing this conversation they were having. There was a young drummer who was telling this older band member about this bad nightmare that he had had. In this nightmare, he said that he remembers in the nightmare, he had all of a sudden had a wife and he had kids and he had a challenging job. And he just remembered waking up and feeling crushed by all of this pressure and responsibility. And this was a college guy, so this was all brand new for him. And it was hard. And the band member, without missing a beat, responded that he wakes up to that nightmare and lives it every day. (laughs) And the drummer was kind of dumbfounded, and he just kind of sat there and said, Wow, I can't believe that you said that out loud. (laughs) This is the picture of the type of astonishment we're talking about. This was not a good thing. He couldn't believe that this guy was saying this out loud. So let's take a close look at how these people respond to Jesus First of all, they questioned his qualifications to communicate the truth that he was speaking. Note that this is not the first time they've heard him speak. Remember, he had come and preached in the synagogue before. This is not the first time they had heard of him altogether. Again, it was his hometown. Some of these people perhaps even watched him grow up. They saw the interactions that he had with his parents, the interactions he had with the local public officials. And just a few verses ago, Jesus had raised a girl even from the dead. That kind of news travels fast. Now, they didn't have the local news outlets or perhaps even social media or text text messages, but they still had the gossip chains, right? This kind of information of a girl who was dead and now is alive gets around fast. But these people, knowing all of this, were still denying that he had the ability to be teaching these truths or even questioning whether or not he should be standing where he was or doing what he was doing. We should all note that this denial of truth was done in the face of a long list of miracles that he had done, in the face of heart-piercing truth that he had taught. It was all fresh, and yet they still were questioning his validity. You see, these people did not need more signs or more proof. 
what they needed was a heart change, a heart changed by the gospel, changed by Jesus, but their hearts were hard. Secondly, they attacked his message by dismissing him to his upbringing. They challenged that, isn't this just the old local carpenter's son? This was an offensive phrase. Isn't this the guy that just fixes tables? Isn't this the guy that just builds plows for the mules? Isn't this the guy that just fixed my window when he was younger? Although manual labor jobs were respectable, by referring to someone who was presently standing in the synagogue teaching merely as someone who just works with his hands could be considered slanderous against who he was. Next, they refer to him as the son of Mary. Now, in today's age, this probably isn't as big a deal, but in that culture, this was a slight against the events that surrounded his birth. It appears that they had come to believe that Jesus was an illegitimate child who could not identify his father. Back in those days, when you were a son, you referred to the son of whoever your father was. So he should have been Jesus, the son of Joseph. But they didn't identify him that way. They called him Jesus, the son of Mary. This was them attacking his character, attacking who he was. They tried to commonize his message by saying, we don't have to listen to him. He's no better than us. He's one of us. He's from around here. Aren't his brothers and sisters here? Didn't he grow up here? Why should we listen to him? As if he did not hold the position in life or the education to be teaching that way. Realize, please, that these were all ploys to distract from the truth. Deep in their hearts, they knew that if they did not somehow discredit this Jesus or his message, that they themselves would be responsible for answering to the truth that he was teaching them. They would have to either repent or face the consequences that he was laying out for those who were unrepentant. And they were not willing to do that. So rather than hearing the message and making changes in their lives, they decided that they were going to attack the teacher. They were going to attack the message and try to cut the legs out from under him. Lastly, they became combative towards him and his message. They took, it says that he took, they took offense at him. Literally means that they stumbled at the very words that he was speaking, perhaps even publicly. Maybe the derision of the crowd had begun to stir and things started to get a little loud and people were publicly starting to criticize him. These people are the hard soil that the seeds fell on that we talked about in chapter 4. Nothing that Jesus had said or had done would take root in their hearts. Rather, they only sought to discredit his message or bring harm to his ministry. And what we must realize today, church, is that we must be ready to meet these people in the world as we go out to share about Jesus. As we are living this life on gospel mission, gospel focused, there are going to be unbelievers out there. They're going to challenge who you are, saying, you do have no right to be teaching me this. No one from Greenville should be speaking the way that you are. You're just from some hick town. Why should I listen to you? These are the same things that Jesus faced. In fact, Jesus guarantees us that this is going to be true. In John chapter 15, we'll read just a short excerpt beginning with verse 18. It says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And this is what Jesus is guaranteeing us. So we should not be shocked by this, right? That our message is offensive to those who hear it. Oftentimes, the truth that people need to repent and stop living the way they are and start living in a way that glorifies Christ can be hurtful and challenging. And the world can begin to hate us for it. And Jesus is guaranteed that they will. So let us be reminded that although the world will hate us for our message, we are still called to live in this world and to reach it to the best of our ability. We are to be sharing the gospel regularly. This means that the message of Christ and him crucified is offensive enough without us adding our own antagonisms to it. We must learn to love the sinner and hate the sin. And we must guard against finding our identity in making the world hate us. And what we're trying to say here is that oftentimes, even here in the South, people become so wrapped up in this idea that the world is going to hate us for what we do, they begin to intentionally try to do things to upset people, intentionally try to say things unnecessarily to kind of stir the pot. And that's not what Christ has called us to do. Christ has called us to strive to be good soil that produces good fruit that endures to the end and withers one day and dies and drops new seed onto more good soil that we may leave that type of legacy. So we see how these people responded, these unbelievers responded to Jesus Now let's take a look how Jesus responded to their unbelief. Jesus makes a searing statement towards these people of his hometown, noting that he had respect everywhere else except here. Verse 4 says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Can you imagine the heartache that Jesus must have felt in saying this? And I truly believe that's probably what Jesus was feeling. Jesus knew these people he was talking to. Jesus had been raised around them. Perhaps he had even healed some of their family members, but they still rejected him as Christ. Although his statements were somewhat intense in their overtones, it is clear that this came from a heart of love. Had Jesus not cared or loved these people, it would not have mattered that they rejected him. But yet he was marveled at their unbelief. He was communicating to these religious people that their familiarity with him had bred contempt in their lives. And they had known this man for so long they could not grasp that he was possibly someone different than whom they had already characterized him as in their mind. Can anybody imagine that being possible? Somewhere where Jesus is being taught or preached so much or so regularly that it begins to fall on deaf ears. It's something that we hear so regularly, so often, that we don't even listen anymore. I pray that that would never be something that's said of integrity. But it can be said of places around here. It can be said of our own hearts sometimes, if we're not careful, if we do not guard against this. But see in this story, do you see the huge opportunity missed? That this hometown of Nazareth could have embraced him as one of their own and championed his cause possibly even becoming a support structure to help send him and his disciples to spread this message of good news, to spread this message of a Savior all around the area. But they didn't. They rejected him. And Jesus knew that his message was falling on hard hearts, and he knew that they had become the hard soil. 
And we can see that in his response and how he said that they did not respect or listen to him. And then he decided that he could do no great miracles here. Now, please recognize Jesus is not some fairy tale or Santa Claus that needs you to believe in him in order to have power. His lack of great work in this town was not because he could not, but rather because he used miracles to attest to the truth or to acknowledge faith. And because of their unbelief, they missed out on an opportunity for Jesus to completely change their lives. And he marveled at their unbelief. This was not a surprise, by the way, to Jesus that they were unbelieving. Jesus knows everything, but rather, again, an astonishment of how these people who knew so much about him and still rejected him. These people had seen more of Jesus, again, than anybody else. He'd been there twice. He grew up there. They've heard him preach. They've heard of his miracles, and they rejected him. They were not just rejecting this one sermon, but rather they're rejecting the whole body of work that Jesus represented. Even to this point, he had cast out demons healed a sick woman, cleansed a leper, restored a withered hand, and even raised a girl from the dead. And that was not enough for them to even inspire the smallest seed of belief. They denied him. Again, there will never be enough proof in this world. That's not the answer. People don't need proof. Rather, what they need is a heart change. We need our cold, dead hearts replaced with new hearts, hearts of flesh that love Jesus And only he can do that. So when we're out dealing with the world, it's not about trying to represent enough facts to them. It's rather pleading that God would change their hearts and begging that he would rescue them. So what was Jesus' response to this unbelief? What did he do? Did he just close up shop and say, okay, well, if my hometown's not going to believe me, then there's no need in continuing with this. I'm done. No, he didn't. If these people were, did not need him, if they did not need the life changing message that he was bringing, that he would go find someone who did. So he left that town. He left the synagogue. He left the religious elite and went somewhere else out into the surrounding villages, maybe where there weren't fancy synagogues or priests, but to somewhere where the cost of living perhaps wasn't so high, where people were dealing with real issues and where people needed someone to rescue him. So knowing that this happened to Jesus and knowing that Jesus is guaranteeing that this unbelief is out there, It kind of brings to question, how are we going to respond to this unbelief? In the next verses, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, I think we can find some indication of how we are to respond to the people that are going to hate us and hate our message. And how we are to deal with this mountain of unbelief that Jesus has guaranteed is out there. So let's read together in chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if, the, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out. And proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil and many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus is kind of laying out some steps here I think we can learn from. After what could have been a monumental letdown in the ministry of the gospel, Jesus decided that he was going to persevere and further spread the good news. 
And he, for the first time, decided that he was going to divide up disciples and send them out to teach this message of repentance to the surrounding villages. And he sends them out with some rather inauspicious commands. He says to take no food, no bags, no money, and only the clothes that they had on. And what was Jesus teaching them by doing this? This was not some first century form of minimalism, but rather that while they were on this journey, they were going to need to be totally dependent, that even though he was not present there with them, that he was going to take care for them. Try to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes. Oftentimes in these narratives, we kind of miss that this was a real story. This really happened. Try to put yourself in those shoes as Jesus is giving out these commands. He's just suffered this big rejection. They decided they're going to spread out. He's kind of giving them this pep talk. He's like, all right, guys, I want you to go out. I want you to preach that people are to repent. While you're out there, I don't want you to take any money. Okay, got that. Don't take any bags. Understandable. I don't want you to take any extra clothes. I don't know. It's kind of hot. That might be an issue, you know, with the smell. Then he says to take no food, and I'd be like, no snacks? Like, we're not taking anything? This is long. We're not going to eat anything on the way? But this is what Jesus is commanding them to do. He's telling them to not worry about these external things, but rather focus on the mission. Jesus then warns them about unbelief. The same unbelief that he faced in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, he is warning them about. And what is Jesus saying here? When he has this strong statement in verse 11, he says, And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is hard to understand, right? Are we to share the gospel with people and if they reject us just to walk away? Never to return? No, not exactly. In fact, this concept is more descriptive than it is prescriptive for us. The context is that disciples would be going into these villages and preaching multiple times. Multiple times would they be telling the good news of who Jesus was and calling for repentance. Then, and only then, if they would not hear if they were characterized perhaps by the hard soil in chapter 4, then they were to go and find those who would receive the message. If you notice, this is exactly what Jesus played out in the first part of chapter 6. Remember, he made his first visit to Nazareth, and he preached, and they drove him out and tried to kill him. He waited some time, and then he came back, and he preached again, and they still rejected him. Then he was marveled at their unbelief, and then he decided to go and share the gospel Somewhere else, somewhere where people would hear. This is not Jesus devaluing these people, by the way. If they were not, as if they were not worthy of the disciples' time or their pursuit, but rather holding in high value the message of the gospel and its urgency to get it to those who would listen. So without any question, they set out to teach the truth to those who did not know Jesus and compelled them to repent. It's important for us to understand this if we're going to apply this warning of unbelief in our lives that we understand the context here. This is not about us casually dismissing people as if we're never going to share the gospel with them anymore, but rather understanding that there are some points in life where we're going to have to set good boundaries, when people are no longer going to listen to the truth that we are teaching. And when that point happens, it's better for us to find those who will listen to the truth. And that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. What Christ was teaching them is that value of the message was so important that they need not concern themselves with other distractions. 
He was calling them to a gospel-centered, gospel-focused life. And what we can glean from that is that we are called to this very same life. And in this life, there can be so many distractions, so many things that we as believers can allow to occupy the central focus of our lives. And it can be distractions. And we can see Jesus warning the the disciples about these same distractions. Again, some different things that could be distractions. Not that these things were wrong in themselves or that they were sin, but he's warning them that if you don't keep these in the right order, if you don't keep these in the right priority, they will become distractions to your ministry. And he warns them about money. Money can be a big distraction for us. As we focus our lives around our jobs and try to push towards making every dollar that we can so that we can have more things, if that's our driving force in our life, then we are distracted from the gospel ministry that we are supposed to be about. He warns them against material things. Look, honestly, this stuff affects me. Yesterday, I saw a thing on social media that if I sent a text message to this number, it would go to Lowe's, and I would enter myself a chance to win a $500 gift card to go to Lowe's. So I did it. They might steal my information. But before I even got a response back, I'd already decided, like, if I win this $500, I was going to go on this long, slow journey through Tool World and just buy $500 worth of tools. I don't need any tools. Like, I have nothing to fix. I just want them. That's me. Material things can be a distraction if we are not careful. He warns them even about daily provisions, food, clothes, water, shelter. If you are so focused on those, even they can be distractions. Then he starts to kind of step on some toes, and he warns them against the approval of man. Is any other people pleasers out there besides me? You're concerned about what other people think about you? Jesus says if they wouldn't hear you to go to someone else. The truth he was teaching them was not that these things are even sin or even unnecessary, but rather that they were to be focused on the mission of the gospel solely and that he would ensure they were taken care of. And we have to see this in our lives. This is what we are to be about, that we are pushing so hard to spread the gospel that we don't let these exterior things start to drag or slow us down. That being the case, we must evaluate and consider, have we laid aside every distraction so we may also live out this gospel-centered mission? Think about it. If we don't have the right thing in the center of our lives, if we don't have that question answered correctly, it can be dangerous to the gospel mission. There's always going to be those out there who oppose us. There's always going to be unbelievers there And so that pressure is always going to be pushing against us. And if we don't get the answer right to the question of what's the center of our lives, then our gospel mission will come to a grinding halt. In fact, actually, the way we live, if you want to answer that question for yourself, if you want to know what's at the center of your life, just start thinking about the way you live and what motivates you to get up every morning. Are you motivated by money? Are you motivated by things? Are you motivated by other people's approval? We have to make sure that we have things in the right priority. They always can define what is at our center. May we commit anew today that everything we do and everything we are is for the gospel's sake. This was the beginning of the disciples' ministry. And I can tell you, it was no walk in the park for them. I've read ahead. They suffered much rejection on the behalf of Jesus. They risked life and limb to spread the good news. Many of them ended up being murdered for the gospel's sake. But to them, it was worth it. 
It was worth it that they gave up everything they were and everything they did to share this story of a beautiful Savior. You see, they had caught a glimpse. They knew Jesus so well. He was so valuable to them that it was worth it that they give up everything. And may this be our story and the legacy that we leave, that one day we met Jesus, and he so changed our lives. He became so valuable to who we are that we were willing to give up and leverage everything that we have that we might share that story with those who don't know him. May God challenge our hearts with this truth this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are challenged by your word. And as we see...